We are in part three of our King series. If you know this, we do yearly themes here at Bridgeway, and this year is the year of the... King, that's right. So the year of the king, we have a couple different series that we're going to be doing. The first one is the king series, going through books like First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, things like that. So as we go through it, remember the idea is Jesus is our one true king. But as we study Israel's history, we find out about allegiances, people following after a king, trading King Jesus for uh, earthly king, how that went for them, things like that. These are all life lessons, yeah? So we're in part three, and I entitled today's message, The Kings Who Wrecked a Nation. The Kings Who Wrecked a Nation. I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank there, but I want to start out with a thought from, from Jesus. In Mark 3, there's a story where Jesus was doing extraordinary miracles. He was doing things that people could not deny casting demons, healing the paralyzed, opening the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. He was doing such extraordinary works that people could not avoid that he was someone special. Now, what happens when someone is doing something very supernaturally special, but you don't like them? What do you do with that? Because really, if it's from God, you're kind of against God. So the one way that they kind of work through that in their minds was we don't think he's legit, so here's what we think is happening. It's not from God. He has special power, but it's from the other side. It's from the dark side. It's from Satan. So they said, well, yeah, you cast out demons. You're doing it, all these miracles, in the power of Satan. Now, a lot of things that were said to Jesus he kind of let him slide off. This one is almost like he had to stop him and go, wait, that's stupid. <laughs> like, we're not even moving on because what you just said is not only offensive, it's just flat out ignorant. And he said, because here's why. If Satan casts out Satan, we got a problem, right? Because a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. A house divided against itself can't stand. If you're constantly cutting each other off, if you have internal turmoil, you're not going to last very long. So why in the world would Satan try to wreck Satan's issues? That doesn't even make any sense. So that's dumb. Now, let's talk about us. You see, our whole series is trying to get an alignment going. That, that the Father told Jesus, and when he was down here, he said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I have an alignment. He is my authority, I do what he tells me to do. That's it. As he gets glorified, he then shares. The Bible says, I'm sending another one just like me that would tell you everything I have said. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. So now you have the alignment of the Father, unified with the Son, unified with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is supposed to reveal to us. That's why we say Bridgeway is scripture-soaked and what? Spirit-led. The Holy Spirit is supposed to reveal to us everything Jesus said, which is everything the Father said, and then we're supposed to carry it out. There should be a very clear channel of alignment. There needs to be a unified vision and a unified body of Christ. Can we all agree on that? Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, so what is so important is that in modern day America, we value independence. We value the idea that everyone's opinions are the same. They're all weighted the same. Hey, we can just all do our own thing. When we do that, we do not get the collective power of the corporate body. We do not get all of us together doing something special. There is a unique blessing that comes when we are unified and together. When you're at home worshiping to your little ocean CD, right? When you're there doing a little hill song or whatever you're doing in your house, kind of dancing around your kitchen, that is one kind of honor to the Lord, right? And it's beautiful. But when you come into this place and there's a thousand voices lifting up the Lord together, there's a different sort of present that you're offering to him. Does that make sense? Because you're saying, I'm not by myself, I'm with my family and we are lifting up the name of the Lord. It's a unique blessing. All right, cool. So we need an important very important concept. We need unity and we need unified vision. Why? Because the fill in the blank and sheet in front of you is this. A house divided can't stand. A house divided can't stand. All right. Now in this series, uh, I'm going to be sharing a bunch of scriptural stories. We're going to read some together. If you're not familiar with Bridgeway, I'm going to give you story time with Pastor Lance, right? <laughs> And this is where we're going to be taking some notes. So if you take notes, I need you right now to write down two names. They are awkward. I just need you to write down two. They seem very similar, but they are very different individuals. Here we go. I need you to write down two names. First name, Rehoboam. Rehoboam. Dumb name. Don't name your kid that. Rehoboam. All right. Next to that name, just write this word, South. Rehoboam is the king of the south in this story. Jeroboam is the king of the north. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, all right? When, I don't know why the Bible always has everybody's names very, very similar. That's just misleading, all right? So if it was up to me, it would have changed. It would have been Joe and Charles, something like that, all right? Rehoboam and Jeroboam, south and north. Okay. Having said all that, let's jump into where we were last time with King Solomon. If you remember, we wrote down three names, right? The first king of Israel was Saul. Second king of Israel was David. Third king of Israel, Solomon. All right, there you go. So as we're tracing down through this history, Solomon, wisest man in the world. Not only that, I would suggest perhaps the wisest man who ever lived. That is a brilliant blessing and anointing of God. He really went bad as he got older. And he fell apart and he kind of became a jerk. So as things began to progress and he began to lose his way, he started actually enslaving his own people to get building jobs done. And so he became more harsh and more mean. Where was this all coming from? His heart was slipping away from the Lord. How do we know that? This phrase from scripture, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now, right off the bat, before the ladies are offended, uh, the ladies were not the problem. It was what the ladies represented. Now, first of all, when it says foreign ladies, why is that highlighted? Because in Israel, 
They knew who was the one and true God. It was supposed to be Yahweh. If you're not in Israel and you're a foreigner, you had a different God. You had different gods. So the problem with him loving many foreign women was that his heart was involved in someone with a very different allegiance. Are we all tracking on that? That was actually the problem. It was not the lady. Now, I'm going to tell you the amount of ladies he was involved with was a problem. 700 wives, 300 concubines. That is significant, right? All right. And so the Bible says this. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. He went really far. He went really bad. How do we know that? Because two specific pagan gods are highlighted that he not only allowed to be worshipped, but built temples for. Who are they? Chemosh and Molech. And you're like, well, who are they? I'll just highlight the one thing they're famous for. The way you worship them to the highest degree, especially Molech, is that there's a bronze statue and it's, uh, you heat it up and heat it up and there's a plate across its hands. And in order to honor that God, you take your baby and place them on that and sear them to death. That is, that is their worship. What in the world is the king of Israel building honor for that? Then again, is he a monster or are we all a little bit monsters? Think about it this way. Have you ever looked back on your life and said, I can't believe I did that? Right? Where we've gone so far where we, we go, oh my goodness, that's not me. Well, it was kind of you. That's why it happened. But you don't want to look at that. You want to block that out, block that out, block that. There are times when we slip away from the Lord where we do things that we are horrified by, right? Solomon ended up in one of those spaces because his heart drifted from the Lord. All right, here we go. This is, now God's ticked off, right? So let's turn, if we can, in our Bibles to 1 Kings 11.9. 1 Kings 11.9. If you need a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you, and it's page 292. 292. If you have your own Bible, drop it open in the middle, go to the left, and you're going to hit books like 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. I need you to split the difference, go in the middle there. 1 Kings 11.9. It helps to read along a little bit. Here we go. 1 Kings 11.9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son 
for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up enemies against Solomon. All right, that means the nation of Edom and the nation of Syria. Okay, God pulled his blessing, and when he pulled his blessing, trouble came in, right? Does God do that? Yes. See, some of us have been believers. We've been Christians for a long time. And we get into that warm and fuzzy role where we are children of God and God treats his children differently. So we have this idea that we are forgiven and that we are full of grace, right? He fills grace upon us. We get into the idea that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we think that's how God treats everybody. That is not true. God's blessing is on believers and non-believers, but sometimes he just pulls back and says, you want nothing to do with me, I'm out. When he pulls back, bad things rush in. The only reason bad things didn't wipe them out before is because of the staying hand of God. Now, the world doesn't think of it that way. There are nations in this world that are on the rise of blessing, but they don't acknowledge God as king, but he's blessing them anyway. But at any point, if he says, I'm out, they'll find out what it is to live without the blessing of God. All right. So God brings up a secret weapon. His name is Jeroboam. Solomon loved to build stuff, right? He was super rich and he wanted to build a bunch of things. So he ends up enslaving people and grabbing some good people. He finds a man who's really smart and he's really good, called a man of the people, hard worker. His name is Jeroboam. He puts him in charge of his building. And then this happens. Look over in verse 29. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me and worshiped, I paraphrase, other gods. Go to verse 37. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. If you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Well, that's a strange day at work, right? 
is all of a sudden he is going home one day and a prophet pulls him aside and says, you are going to be the head over the vast majority of Israel. Now, real quick show of hands. How many of you are good at math? Raise your hands. Are you good at math? Yep. All right, fantastic. There's quite a few of you in this. That makes me unsettled. Okay, <laughs> I am not good at math. Um, now, if you are good at math, you probably noticed a bit of a math error in uh, God's little reveal right there. How many parts of the garment were there? 12. He gave how many to the new guy? 10. Ten. And he said, I'm gonna keep one for the other guy. Anybody got a problem with that? <laughs> okay, where's the other one going? Okay, there's a very simple answer, and it's this. There are 12 tribes of Israel that had 12 allotments of land. Down in the south, there was a big old one called Judah. Now, when we talk about Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's what we're talking about. That's where Jerusalem was. That was the center of the entire country. However, when it was first allotted, another brother got space in there named Simeon, but he was kind of lame. So his brother's success overwhelmed him and surrounded him, and they kind of became one. So you can refer to it, and the Bible says sometimes it's two, and sometimes it's one, whatever. It's those guys. That's the answer to our problem. All right. Now, moving on. Solomon finds out about the nice little conversation with the prophet. Oh, wait, somebody new is going to be king? I don't think so. My son will be king, and his name isn't Jeroboam. It's Rehoboam. He's going to be on the throne. So he tries to assassinate Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt and stays there until he's dead. Do you realize the Bible has a lot of fleeing to Egypt stories? Okay, so they flee to Egypt. He hides out, right? Now, let me cut to the chase. Jeroboam's not a good guy. As a matter of fact, he's a bad guy. But God's going to use him. And as a matter of fact, Rehoboam's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. But God's going to use him. Why does God use bad guys? I mean, think about the world today. Think about all the different things going on, all the people that are successful, all the people that are influencing, right, our nation, all the people that are involved in the big stuff. What about the people around the world? Does God ever allow bad guys to succeed? Why? You know, I get the question periodically in Ask Pastor Lance, right? My live Q&A or my radio one, and people ask me, so can't God just kill Satan and get rid of him, right? Which is a fair question, because they're like, he's kind of a problem. <laughs> okay, so I'll ask you the question, can God get rid of Satan? Will God get rid of Satan? Yes. yes. Is he getting rid of him now? No. Why? Okay, so here's the thing. He doesn't get rid of him because he's still utilizing him. He is still a pawn in the whole grand scheme of things. Why? He's the other guy. He's the other option. That when we all want to choose sides and we say, I don't want to go God's side, which side do you think you're going on? You think you're going on your side? You're not. There's God's side and then the other side. That's it. So as long as he's utilizing him, he keeps him around. The minute that he's done with that plan, he's gone. 
In the same way, God allows bad people to succeed as long as he's utilizing and moving the pieces around. Find it? Good. All right, here we go. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Here we go. <laughs> Solomon dies. Jeroboam finds out about it, comes back home, and there's a new regime. At the age of 41 years old, Rehoboam takes over the throne from his dad, who was a super popular, albeit weird guy at the end, and he reigns for 17 years. Now, Jeroboam comes in and all the rest of Israel is like, dude, you're back, where you been? I've been in Egypt. All right, we're gonna lead a coalition and we're gonna go find out whether or not Rehoboam is gonna lead like his dad or if he's gonna do something different. He said, all right, I'll lead that. He goes up in front of Rehoboam and he's like, hey, so what kind of administration are you gonna run here? What are you gonna do? We just wanna know. All of us here are eager to know if you're gonna keep acting like your dad, which is a little bit off, or are you gonna do your own thing? He said, hmm, I don't know yet, I've never been king. So let me get some counsel. So he gets a bunch of the old guys from the prior administration. He gathers them around and this is what they say. Rehoboam, we don't mean any disrespect, we love your dad, but your dad really messed up. So your dad was super off later on in life and he was really mean. If you want this nation to follow you, I need you to mellow out, I need you to earn the people's hearts back, I need you to be kind and gracious and take the hits that come with that. That's my, that's my recommendation. And he's like, hmm, well, that's an interesting perspective. I'll think about that. Then it says he grabs the guys he grew up with, the young guys. They all come around. He's like, all right, guys, I talked to the old dudes. They said, I need to be nicer. What do you guys think? They're like, brother, if you are nicer, that's an economic hit. You can't do that. If you start letting the slave stuff go, you're not gonna have a workforce. No way, man. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Double down on mean, right? Like if your dad was mean, you be meaner. As a matter of fact, here's a great motto you can use for your campaign. My dad led you with whips. I will whip you with scorpions. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Literally, that's the fray. Come on. Really? And double down on mean. And he goes, that's probably economically better. So... He goes back to the nation and says, you thought my dad was bad. I'm going to be way worse. Well, all of Israel freaks out. We're out. We don't want you as a leader. And he's like, well, you have no choice. They go, well, we're going back home. And he ends up sending his number one taskmaster, kind of like the ax man, to come in and start to tell them what to do. And they stone him to death. Now, that's called a response right? The nation was like, oh no, that ain't happening on our watch. Has there ever been a time when nations rise up when they're tired of how things are going? Hmm, maybe there has been, right? The problem is, is when they get super mad and they raise up and grab somebody, they don't grab a good guy. They grab another bad guy. Ah, that's going to be a problem. So last question I have for you on this piece. It says, and Rehoboam did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Who are you listening to for advice? You're listening to somebody for advice. Is it your spouse? Is it your friends? Who are you listening to for advice? Is it maybe a, a thought stream 
Is it a person on the radio? Is it a person on TV? Who's giving you advice? Well, I do my own thing. No, you don't. How are you supposed to know about everything going on in the world? Who's giving you advice? Who's giving you wisdom? Because sometimes the person giving you wisdom is not in alignment with the Lord. Ah, that's going to lead us into some bad places. All right, now we have a nation enraged, and it's broken. It will be broken for hundreds of years. Jeroboam is made king over the north. Ten tribes, because he's a man of the people. Rehoboam tries to put down this great rebellion. You can imagine if you're king and some other dude rises up, you got to control it. You got to freak out, right? So he's going, we're going to put it down. He grabs the standing army, raises up a massive army to go destroy the rebellion. Quick question. Who's he going to go kill? His own people. This is only Jews versus Jews. There's no external enemy. It's a civil war. You're killing your own people. So he gets ready to march out, and God says, whoa, hold up. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to go shut it down. No, you need to shut it down, and I want you to go home. He stops the entire movement and goes home. Now, Rehoboam isn't a good guy, but I'll tell you, right there, that's a massive power move. Does God have the ability to stop you? Right? I mean, what a question. You're all fired up. Somebody wronged you. And you get this, this what, whisper from the Holy Spirit, mellow out. Where are you going right now? Well, I'm going to go tell them off and I'm going to do, 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 right? You're going to, you know, you have all kinds of anger in you. I need you to shut it down and I want you to go home. You can't tell me what, right? We just blow right on by and we let people have it. Can God shut you down? If not, we have a king problem. Yeah? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say, Jesus said. Man, tough thing right there. All right. Jeroboam now is in charge of the majority of Israel. He's never done this before. So he has to come up with a new way of doing things. And here's his number one problem. Where's the capital? In the south. That's not his territory. When you got the, when you got what? The capital down there, you also have the temple down there. Is the temple important to the Jews? Uh, yeah. Every Jew has to go there at least once a year, right? So if everybody's constantly going to your enemy's area and that's the hub of the whole nation, you're not going to lead very long. So he says, that's not going to happen. I'm making a whole new way of doing things. So he creates a whole new system of worship. Check this out. This is creepy. He makes two golden bull calves. Uh-oh. Okay, anybody heard the phrase, history repeats itself? <laughs> okay, haven't we already done the golden calf thing before? Yeah, that was the whole Moses is up on the mountain with God. His brother Aaron is down below. They go, Aaron, I think your brother died up there and we're just hanging around. We need to do a new thing. Let's make new gods and run after them. And Aaron goes, okay. And he makes one. <laughs> freaks Moses out. He's breaking 10 commandments and he's running after, he's grinding it up, making people drink it. I mean, it's just brutal stuff, right? We've already done that. Why in the world would you do it again? 
I don't know. Our nation keeps repeating itself over and over and over again, too. So who knows, right? It's human nature. So he makes two bull calves, sets one in his north and one in his south just before the border. And this is the creepiest part about it. You can go over right now and there's archaeological digs that are in the top north area. I've been there. And here's what you find out. When you check the measurements of the temples he built, they're the identical measurements to the temple in Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because he sets up the exact same replica, but there's a different God in the middle. That way, everybody doesn't feel weird walking into a new temple because they're like, oh, this looks like the old one. So they just walk in and they do their things but it's to a different God. How tricky is that? Do you understand everything that has a Christian label on it or a religious label on it isn't always healthy? The highest level of deception, right? Just make everybody perfectly calm, but you're worshiping an entirely different God. Ah, that's messed up. Well, now he knows that the Levites and the priests are not going to have any of that business, so he kicks them all out. They all go down south, right, to Rehoboam, where the real temple is, and he institutes it just as, hey, it's a career choice. Anybody can be a priest. Anybody can be a Levite. Yay, come on in, right? Sets up his own system. What's the problem with worshiping kind of God? It's not God at all. Most of us in this room would be horrified if what? Somebody said, I want you to worship another God and get rid of God. We wouldn't do that. We'd say, that's ridiculous. But if we add on, we're okay. Because we want God and money. We want God and materialism. We want God and self. We have no problem adding in as long as we think that there's enough God left in there so that we're good people, right? That's the problem with kind of God. You see, in that original calf incident with Moses and Aaron, Aaron even said, let's have this golden cow and then we'll have a festival for Yahweh. Let's just do it all. You can't do it all because to do it all means you're not doing any of it. Yeah? That's powerful. All right. Here we go. Well, he's now doing his little worship thing, and he's offering sacrifices on the altar of his pagan gods, and a prophet walks up, says, this is completely bogus. This is out of line. I will tell you that God is going to raise up a king in the future named Josiah. And he's going to rip this whole thing apart and he's going to desecrate this altar because it's pagan and human bones are going to be offered on. He starts going off on all this stuff, right? And Jeroboam is livid. Who do you think you are? How dare you come into my place and tell me what to do? And he reaches out and says, seize him. And the minute he does that, his arm shrivels up and gets stuck like that. Now that's a little awkward right? Because you're walking around like this, right? It's super, everyone keeps like, where are we pointing? What we, <laughs> what's over that, right? And it's hard to put a shirt on. You understand what I'm saying? Because you have to kind of loop it around and then just draw it back on. All right. So when you're doing this kind of thing, he realizes the altar breaks and all kinds of things happen. And he's like, oh no, I did something seriously wrong. Okay. So he repents. 
I'm so sorry, says to the prophet, you got to pray for me. I can't have my arm like this, right? And he prays for him. His arm goes back normal. And you would think, wow, what a powerful time. How do you deny the power of God, Amen. right? Yeah. Incredible. Look in 1 Kings 13, 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. Oh, there you go. Is it possible to see a miracle of God and still go back to being rebellious? Yes. But he made high priests in the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. So many of us continue to read the Old Testament and we're like, oh, there comes God. He's like shriveling people's arms and he's, and he's like bringing destruction. And did you see the softness in there? Why? He lets this guy repent knowing full well he's going to go back to it. And he heals him. Why would God heal him? Why not just leave him that way and go, you know what? Your heart's not in it. I know your heart's in it for a few moments, but your heart's not in it for the long term. Forget you. But God doesn't do that. He's soft. Do you know why this is so important? Because it's how we all end up going to the altar. In the moment, we can't see you in the future, and in the moment, we really are sorry. Now, what God knows is that we're going to go back to it. But we don't know that. And we have all the best intentions in the world. But God meets us in that place and says, okay, I love you so much, I'll heal you right now. Now, why? Because God's love costs him all the time. He loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to the cross that we might never die. Because every time when we rebel against him and it hurts his heart, he said, but if you turn to me and repent, I'll forgive you. Why? His love is stronger than your sin and my sin. How amazing is that? This is, this is the God of the Old Testament, right? Remember, please don't separate those two. Same God, yesterday, today, and forever. All right, here we go. So in the south, Rehoboam digs in. He reinforces the south. All the priests and Levites come in, and it starts going awesome. Just listen to this. And after those who set their hearts to seek the Lord of God of Israel came from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, they strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Three-year revival. That all of a sudden, Rehoboam is like, man, we got to do the right thing. And he surrounds himself with good Christian support. Because now he starts having, what, all these priests and Levites in. Everybody's encouraging one another. They got this cool vibe going. This is his big chance to be a different sort of king. And he can be the right guy. He can turn from his wicked ways. Now he's starting to do things right. But does he? No. There's so much dysfunction in that guy. And so much of it he borrowed from his dad. Right? How do we know that? Because... 
18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons, and 60 daughters. That's dysfunction, right? Where did he learn that from? His dad? His dad had a thousand. He didn't have a thousand, but he had a lot. And here's what's so messed up. Just as he was the favorite of his dad, he ends up finding a favorite son that he wants to put on the throne next. And he tells everyone else that that's his favorite son. Why? Because it comes from his favorite wife. If you have a favorite wife, something's wrong with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> there should just be wife, not favorite wife. And his wife is his cousin. You. <laughs> right? So his favorite wife cousin has a son, and he wants to put him on the throne. Yeah? Are we talking about history repeating itself again? Didn't we do this with Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? You know what I mean? Like, okay, favoritism. This is dysfunction in a family. How we lead our families matters. I'm going to say that as often as I can. The dysfunction's pouring through. Can we stop the dysfunction? Can you be the break in the chain? Because a lot of times we say, well, I'm not as bad as dad or mom. That still doesn't mean it's right. Just because you're a little less of a jerk, you're still a jerk. <laughs> what we want is submitting total surrender to the Lord so that he can start afresh with a wise and good husband and wife to bless their children and start a whole new lineage, yeah? yeah. That's what we're trying to go for. Man, but this is where it all went wrong for Rehoboam. Second Chronicles 12.1 says this, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. I'll tell you, your number one point of temptation is not when you have cancer. Your number one point of temptation is not when you lose your job. Your number one point of temptation is when everything is awesome, right? How do I know that? I'm just a man and I can look out and I can watch your attendance at church. When things are great, you don't show up. When things fall apart, you come back. If I can notice that, what do you think God is seeing? Here's what it makes me think of. Why would God want to bless his people when the blessings lead to their downfall, right? God, how come you're not nicer to it? Well, because every time I'm nice to you, you guys walk away from me. You wonder why God would bless us at all. Why shouldn't he just keep it difficult all the time? Because he still loves us and he wants to bless us. So he always gives us a little bit more room and he says, can I just bless you and you walk with me? Can't I just bless you and you love me for it? Can't I just bless you and you be thankful and live in gratitude? Why do you got to walk away from me? Interestingly enough, our blessings tend to lead us away from the Lord, and yet what are almost all of our prayers about? God, bless me. Interesting, huh? So sure enough, uh, a prophet shows up again, this time to Rehoboam, and he says, you abandon God, God is abandoning you. Egypt's going to come in and destroy you. Rehoboam freaks out, repents, and says, I'm so sorry. And what does God do? Okay, I won't destroy you. But I'm going to let them beat you up and make you slaves. 
Okay. <laughs> Jerusalem is ransacked and they steal all the best stuff out of the temple. Now they have a less cool temple because he wouldn't follow the Lord. South goes on a roller coaster, constant fighting with the North, and eventually Rehoboam dies and puts his favorite son on the throne. Last story. King Jeroboam, meanwhile, his son gets sick. And he tells his wife, hey, I'm not really into the God thing. I think you're pretty clear on that. But I do know that one prophet, that one guy that told me that I was going to be king. Yeah, we got to find that dude. We got to find out what's going to happen with our son. So I need you to disguise yourself because he and I don't get along. So I don't want him to know that you're my wife. So if you could disguise yourself, I need you to go find him. So she does. The prophet by this time is old and he cannot see. But God gives him a word. Jeroboam's wife is coming to the door. So sure enough, she's like, ding dong, right? Oh, I'm another lady. I don't know, you don't know me. I don't know you, right? And he goes, wife of Jeroboam, get in here. And she's like, ah, shoot, that didn't work. And he says this, 1 Kings 14, 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and you have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Pause. If God drops dung language in his rebuke of you, he's really angry. <laughs> Unpause. Let's go to verse 11. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds will eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. Boy, that was not what she wanted to hear. You don't just use God like that. Now, this is where we mistake in our minds and we're like, oh, well, now you're telling me that God punished him by his child. Stop that. That's not true. What God did was pull back his blessing. The only reason he ever had any children was a blessing from God. He kept thinking it was all him, and only when the bad stuff showed up, it was God being mad. All the blessings of his life were from God. But at one point, God said, no more. You're out. And what's going to happen is going to happen because you are not with me. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? After 22 years, Jeroboam dies and the nation is firmly in disrepair. You guys, these are two kings right out of the gate and they screw up everything. Why? Because they're not following the Lord. Division leads to destruction. Division leads to destruction. I'm going to make two quick statements. Number one, what does this mean to you personally? Y'all, God is going to love you and chase after you until he has your heart 100%. Because any division, a house divided in your heart 
is not strong enough to handle life. He either needs you all or you're going to hurt yourself, right? He's trying to overwhelm you with his love so that you give him all. And how does it affect the local church? Here's how it affects Bridgeway. And that is this. You guys, I'm the senior pastor of this church, and it is my primary job to discern the vision of where we go. I can't do that alone, so I have senior leaders with me. I have an elder team with me, and our job collectively is to find out what God wants. That is our number one job. Sometimes we do it well, sometimes we don't do it well. It is our main job. But as we follow the Lord and we move the church and continue to develop and change and do things that we feel are right, a house divided can't stand. There are things that we're going to lead you in that you're going to go, that's awesome, totally in line with what I think. There's going to be times when we're going to do stuff and lead you in things. You're going to go, ah, I don't see it that way. That's not right. We cannot be a divided house. The reason why I'm talking about it right now is currently we are in a very peaceful place. I love talking about it while we're in peace, right? I mean, we're not talking about when there's a big problem. But will there be a problem? Of course there is. That's how real life is. We're going to be leading and talking about things that you're, and we're going to lead you in areas and you go, I don't, I don't see it that way and I don't. You always have to ask the question, is the senior leadership seeking the heart of God? And if they're not, you got two things that you need to do. Number one, you need to find out in scripture why we're off and let us know. And number two, you need to pray about it, right? Because who is he going to hold accountable if we go wrong? The senior leadership, right? But what I want to do is I want us to utilize the power of togetherness. I want us to utilize the power of unity in this church so that we mobilize thousands to change our community, not a few individuals. You, whether you agree or disagree, either we're part of it together or we're not. We don't just get to break up and go wherever we want just because it doesn't work for us, right? I want us to be all that God has designed us to be and we need to continue to make changes in order to get there. Are you with me? Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and pray over this altar. Some of you have come in with needs and you need a touch from God. We're going to pray that this altar is anointed so that you might be able to receive a touch from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we pledge our allegiance to you alone. That King Jesus, you are the head of this church. You are the head of our lives. You are the head of everything that we desire in this world. And we want to tell you that we want to do it your way. So Lord Jesus, wherever we are askew, wherever we are off, would you guide and direct and lead us into the right way? That Lord, that our hearts may be fully aligned, that anything that you want to pour through us, Lord, comes through easy and naturally. Father, I pray for the unity amongst our family here, that, God, we have a lot right now, and we just want to bless that. We want to say, yes, God, more of that. But, Lord, when times get difficult or times get confusing, would you hold us close together? Would you continue to build our family and build the body of Christ here so that, Lord, we might be able to do all that you have decided that we ought to do? 
And God, we pray even right now that you would bless us by anointing this altar, that everyone that stands in the office of prayer warrior right here would be anointed afresh, that all of their prayers touch heaven. That God, that anyone that would come forward and seek a touch from you would have a personal interaction with you, that it would be deep and rich and they would leave this place full of your love. Oh God, put us in awe again of your mighty movement. Please do not allow anything in our hearts to block you from what you wanna do. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next time.